Every person who joins a board comes as a three-dimensional human being with minds of their own, opinions, and points of view that don't necessarily fit squarely into some label. <laughs> as parent of millennial kids, I have learned a lot about the challenges of labeling. So perhaps you see yourself as liberal and yet have mixed feelings about gun control or maybe Republican and you fight for LGBT equality. We're all filled with what feels like points of view that are often quite contradictory. And yet when you join a board, what exactly have you signed up for? Well, first and foremost, you have signed up to be a vocal and visible champion of the mission of the organization on whose board you serve. In my opinion, you have to be absolutely in love with the mission of your organization. So what about your personal politics and views? Do they have a place at the table? Are you voted onto the board because of them or in spite of them? Or are they no one's business? A recent controversy at the American Museum of Natural History in New York has brought these questions front and center in recent weeks. That crisis raised these larger questions for me, issues I, I found myself grappling with when I dealt with donors to GLAD, the organization I led for a decade. I wanted to know more, so I went right to the source, the source, board source. Stay with us for a conversation that promises to cause a bit of head scratching and introspection about your own organization. And uh, if you're looking for easy answers, I encourage you to go on over to Bu BuzzFeed and take one of those quizzes, because you won't find them here. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and an abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, the dear Abby of nonprofits, gets it, and she is here to help. Ann Wallistead is the president and CEO of BoardSource, a nonprofit that works to inspire and support excellence in nonprofit governance and in board and staff leadership. Ann has been a member of BoardSource's leadership team for almost 10 years and brings 20 years of leadership experience in the nonprofit sector. Since taking the helm as CEO five years ago, Ann has helped BoardSource expand its leadership and reach in the nonprofit sector, achieving more than 200% growth in the number of leaders BoardSource serves and launching several new initiatives including the Stand for Your Mission campaign. I totally dig this campaign because I think of it as an advocacy campaign to engage boards in more effective advocacy. Establishing advocacy as an expectation for engaged and effective board leadership. And by doing so, BoardSource helps these organizations realize their missions and set priorities in partnership with policymakers rather than simply waiting for the outcome. Anne is modeling leadership at BoardSource and embodying the narrative BoardSource works to instill in others. Impressive indeed. Thank you so much and welcome, Anne. Thanks so much, Joan. I'm really pleased to be joining you and to have this opportunity to talk about the importance of strong values-driven board leadership. Hear, hear. So I'm thinking that your Stand for Your Mission campaign is a mighty good jumping off point for our discussion today. Can you describe for us what you see as the role of a board member when they say, yes, I will be a board member as it relates to the mission of this organization? 
Yeah, it's a big job. Um, and there are a few things that I would highlight in terms of how board source defines the role of the board and the role, uh, therefore, of individual board members. So at the most fundamental level, the board as a whole is responsible for defining the mission and purpose of the organization. And that means that new board members must believe in the mission and purpose of the organization and be committed to helping the organization fulfill them. I love your language of they have to be in love with the mission. That could not be more true. Uh, building on that, the board has a really important role to play in strategy and planning. So working in partnership with the executive, whether that's a chief executive or an executive director, as well as other senior leaders, boards are responsible for helping the organization think through how best to advance its mission. And that means how best to prioritize strategies and resources in a way that will enable it to maximize maximize its impact. The board is also responsible for important oversight functions, and that's really about ensuring that the organization is having an impact and stewarding its resources wisely. And those are both absolutely core to mission. Um, of course, there's a lot that goes into proper oversight. Uh, it includes the oversight of the organization's finances and ensuring that it has the resources that it needs to do its important work, i.e. fundraising. Um, but it's also about legal compliance, uh, ensuring that there is strong programmatic quality and ensuring that its executive is providing really strong leadership to the organization. And then finally, and this is to your point about the Stand for Your Mission campaign, the board is responsible for really strong external leadership and ambassadorship. And I'll say that this is a place where, at least in, in my opinion, in board sources opinion, we're often overlooking or underemphasizing how truly important this is. And when it comes to external leadership, too often we're focused exclusively on fundraising, and we're forgetting the important role that boards can and I would say should play in representing the organization um, to others in the community. So that's important stakeholders, uh, whether they're program participants, community leaders, or policymakers. And just as we talk about in the Stand for Your Mission campaign, that that campaign is really all about helping board members better understand that important leadership role that they have to play as advocates for their missions and encouraging board members to be stronger, more visible external leaders for their organizations and their missions. And that's really what BoardSource is talking about when we say stand for your mission. So that was great, Anne. And I heard four things in that. I heard defining the mission, strategy and planning, oversight, and external leadership and ambassadorship. And it's interesting to hear you say these things because I think to myself, how many board members join boards and they actually have no idea that they're ultimately responsible for defining the mission of the organization. Mm -hmm. So many board members feel like they're following rather than leading. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, it, it is a delicate balance because if you're not on board with the mission and purpose of the organization, well, then why would you join the board? Um, but I think the thing that's important to understand is that the board really owns that mission and purpose and it is not fixed. Um, they really, it really must be revisited and reinterpreted on an ongoing basis uh, and ensuring that the organization remains relevant and purposeful. Um, you know, I, I could point to plenty of, of stories of organizations that have gone through major shifts and changes in their mission and purpose over the course of time. Um, one example, a great one, is the March of Dimes. You know, they were originally 
founded to address the issue of childhood polio. But when that threat was largely, largely eradicated, they made the decision to redefine their mission and purpose to maternal and child health more broadly. Um, so, you know, a board paying attention to who are we and who are we supposed to be in this moment and for the future is an ongoing rather than a one-time responsibility. What's interesting about this whole notion of leadership is what does it mean to own the mission versus the strategy and the programs? Can They can be defined in various ways. It's true that the path to the fulfillment of a mission can vary. Agreed? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And that ongoing interpretation then becomes even more important. And I would add to that, you know, at a more tactical level, really uh, building uh, plans and strategies in a way that anticipates and responds to changes in the external or operating environment um, so that you have a flexible enough framework for strategy and plans uh, that you can acknowledge that dynamic nature of the work and really empower the chief executive to make smart decisions about implementation within that mutually agreed framework or, or strategy. So if I can continue my line of questioning. And yes, remember, you are under oath. Sure. <laughs> so let's say a mission statement could be general, but the path to executing it can vary. Is it not true, Ms. Wallstead, that I could be a champion for a mission, but not for its strategies or programs? Could that be true? And how would that work? That's really... It's, it's interesting. And, and, and I suppose, you know, that in many ways you're right. It, it's essential that a board, including each individual board member, um, is aligned on the big picture of the organization's mission and purpose. But that you're right. That might not necessarily translate into across-the-board agreement about specific strategies and programmatic tactics. But what I would add to that is that it is absolutely essential that the board provide enough clarity about the overall strategy and direction of the organization that the chief executive can effectively manage the organization. Uh, because if there's not that clarity, uh, it's really impossible for the organization to move forward. So while every individual board member may not agree with every single thing that the organization is doing, the board as a whole needs to be willing to say, this is what we've decided, this is what we're going to empower the chief executive to implement, and you know we're going to stand by it. Um, because without that clarity, it's really impossible for the executive to lead the organization effectively. And you know, it, it's sort of in practice, they will either suffocate under the weight of board micromanagement because every decision will have to come back to the board to be individually debated or discussed if you don't have that type of strategic framework, or the organization will simply fall fall prey to inertia by by not being able to do anything. And you know, I suppose um, you could even you know see a scenario where both of those things would happen, which is obviously not what anybody wants to happen when you care deeply about an organization and its work. Right. So I open this podcast by talking about private politics and public responsibility, and you've laid out beautifully what the uh, what the board member's responsibility is to the organization. But the stakeholders around the organization, whether it's board members, as ambassadors, or it's donors, there are all kinds of, as I said, you know, people come as these three-dimensional beings, right? So I'm going to tell you a very quick donor story, but then I want to move into sort of the equivalent on that on the board side as well. So this was a story about a corporate sponsor when I was at GLAD, 
as the nonpro as a nonprofit CEO. Uh, we were in five alarm blaze mode when our organization engaged in a corporate sponsorship agreement with the Coors Brewing Company. By making that partnership, I was responsible for ending a long-standing boycott against Coors. The Coors family had a long, rich history of donating to anti-gay causes, which is what led to the boycott to begin with. But, he, but here they were in, I, I think it was 2000. They were first rate in their policies, welcoming and protecting LGBT employees. In fact, they were better than most of our sponsors, but their board members who are Coors family members were active and likely still are in the Heritage Foundation, a conservative organization that has sort of an ultra-conservative agenda on a number of issues and does indeed support anti-LGBT legislation. After a lot of angst, we went into a corporate partnership with them because I wasn't going to dig into the private giving of every other corporate sponsor, and their company was first rate on LGBT issues. But it was a really, really murky set of circumstances. But the truth is it wasn't murky for me or for our board. I wasn't going to hold one corporate sponsor to a different set of standards from all the others. But yes, I walked on hot coals. And I think there are a lot of quagmires you land in when you dig into the background of a sponsor and or board member. So the question for you is this. So Anne, riddle me this. How far should a nomination or recruitment committee go to ensure that a new board member is singing off the same song sheet? So, you know, and not maybe not just at the board meeting. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and that's a great example, because it really does point to the importance of having clarity about organizational values and, you know, what's okay and what's not in the context of your organization and its mission. And in the giving world, as in this example, you know, that should really be formalized as a part of a gift acceptance policy. So a policy that acknowledges that, you know, not all gifts should be accepted, that there are some situations, whether, um, you know, because of the way that the gift is given or the purpose or goals of the donor, as is in this case, you know, that it's better not to accept a, a gift. Uh, with board members, I think it's a similar thought process, but uh, the stakes are a whole lot higher. And that's because it's not just about an affiliation with a potentially controversial or conflicting entity or individual. It's about giving that individual or institution power within your organization's decision making. You know, donors, of course, yes, they might have some influence, but they don't have any official decision making power. Whereas board members, as a part of the collective board's decision making function, absolutely do. And that's a really big deal and a really important distinction. Um, so, you know, at, at BoardSource, we talk about the importance of defining organizational values as a board, as a group. And the reason that we think that's so important is because it's absolutely essential that there is true clarity at an organizational level about what an organization stands for, what they're willing to be um, you know, associated with, and what they want to be firmly against. And it's, you know, in, in our opinion, it's just not appropriate to put that burden of defining organizational values on the chief executive alone, because the value should be the organizations, you know, not the CEOs. And that's important for a whole host of reasons, not the least of which is to make sure that when an organization comes under fire, as, you know, was the case in, in your example with Coors, that the board shares that burden and responsibility for the decision and that the organization and its leadership body can be a unified front together 
together with the chief executive on why that decision was made. Um, you know, and to your question, sometimes that means defining clear lines about policy or other positions that will guide decision making. Um, I love the example that you shared because it helps really illuminate some of the nuance around this. Um, what I, I'm making some assumptions here, but what I take from what you shared is that had Coors not had good policies towards its LGBT employees, that perhaps you wouldn't have accepted their money. That's totally correct. That's why I couldn't hold them to a different set of standards when their policy were their policies were in fact better than other corporate sponsors we had partnerships. Yep, which makes perfect sense, you know, and that's an appropriate um, line for your board and you to to sort of define as the, you know, here's our in and here's our out. Um, but, you know, to say that it was okay with you, um, that just because you had in, they had individual leaders with whom you disagreed, that that wasn't necessarily a, de- a deal breaker. Now, another organization could make a different decision and you can debate which one is right. Um, but I think the point here is that you have clarity that is mission driven about what's okay and what's not. Um, at BoardSource, we sometimes talk about this in the context of a, you know, a quote, 60 minutes test, which is encouraging boards to think about whether or not they'd be comfortable explaining their thought process or a particular decision on 60 minutes, or, you know, you can play that out, any, any sort of news article. Um, the point the point here, you know, of course, is that you don't want to make a decision that you don't feel comfortable defending um, or or somehow having made public. You know, I've heard folks say things before like, oh, you know, well, we'd be comfortable taking the money, but we would hope nobody would hear about it. That is a flag. <laughs> you know, if you feel like you would not be comfortable um, with public reaction to your decision, whether that's reaction from donors, employees, the people you serve, anyone, it's definitely a red flag that that you need to be thinking about that decision perhaps a little bit differently, and it may even be pointing to the fact that it might be the wrong one. We are talking with Ann Wallistead, who's the CEO of BoardSource, the go-to organization working to inspire and support nonprofit leadership, and she is the go-to CEO. We've been talking about what it means to be a board member, what are the obligations and responsibilities, and how do the public responsibilities of being a board member for a particular organization tie or not to someone's own personal politics? You know, my friend uh, Kevin Jennings does nominations and recruitment, and he thinks about it this way. He tells people, we are hiring a group of people. You're just not paying them anything. (laughs) It's a big job. And you really have to think about it that way. You have to hire people that are going to do this very, very important job. And I think that's why board source's role is so important. So now let's move then and talk a little bit about this notion of private politics and the organizational responsibility. And the most prominent recent example of this has been happening at the American Museum of Natural History. So allow me to offer a little bit of um, intro. Trustee there, a woman named Rebecca Mercer, has been a trustee for a number of years, and the museum is under fire to ask her to step down. She's known to financially support organizations that fight the science that makes the claim for climate change. Now, even a couple of years ago, there were some rumblings about this, but it really began to hit the fan in January when about 80 scientists went forward, um, went public to the museum, raising concerns followed by the curatorial staff of about 20 or 30 members uh, inside the museum. So you've got external folks, You've got internal folks who are concerned, 
and are not being quiet. It's very easy to Google the story and read all about it from varying sides or been protests outside the museum. So not only do we have sort of a mission moment crisis, but we have sort of a very public debate. So you look at the mission of the organization, and the museum's mission is to discover, interpret, and disseminate through scientific research and education knowledge about human cultures, the natural world, and the universe. I'm going to say it again so it sinks into any of you who are standing on elliptical machines because it's important to the rest of the conversation. Here it is again. To discover, interpret, and disseminate through scientific research, education, and knowledge about human culture, the natural world, and the universe. So here's the concern. Rebecca Mercer, in addition to the $3 million a year, I believe that she contributes to the museum, not 100% sure, but I think it's $3 million a year. She and her family financially support organizations that fight the science that makes the case for climate change. So based on these facts alone, Ms. Wallstead, and remember, you're still under oath, <laughs> knowing that she gives generously to the museum, if you're the board chair, how do you lead the board to a decision that is the kind you just described, where everyone stands behind that's public, rich with integrity, and, and everyone is sure that the entire board to use your language, can stand together. You're actually probably really glad you're not the board chair there, aren't you? Yeah. I know I am. This is a great example. <laughs> it's a great example of the, the tough decisions, you know, that boards are faced with. Um, and of course, you know, I have, to, I have to, to say on the outset, I don't know all of the ins and outs of this particular situation. Um, so, you know, I, I can only speak generally about the impact of individual board members' perspectives on an organization's mission, reputation, and work. Um, and and the, the, the truth of the matter is, there's really no easy answer in terms of how boards should be thinking about situations like this. And that's, you know, at least, uh, in part because diversity of thought can actually be a huge asset within the boardroom. At BoardSource, we talk about the importance of both independent mindedness and a, a culture of inquiry. And when we, when we talk about those two things, they're both about ensuring that the board as a deliberative body has the benefit of lots of different perspectives and opinions that enable them to get at good, well-considered decisions. And you just can't do that well if everyone agrees or sees things in the same way. But, you know, just as we were discussing earlier, it is reasonable for an organization to think through if there are any affiliations or public positions that would be just, you know, straight up problematic for a board member to hold. Uh, but that should be based on mission-driven considerations, not any sort of political litmus test. And I, and I would argue that the, that the calculus really should be the same regardless of how much that person is or is not contributing as a donor. Fair enough. Yeah, I think that how much Rebecca Mercer is contributing is a kind of the least of their challenges as they grapple with this. And part of the reason we we took the path we did through the course of this conversation, is that the mission statement doesn't really tell me everything I need to know in order to be a member of this board to determine if, I, if a member of the board has to believe the science of climate change, does it? 
Well, that's a that's a very important question for this board to interpret and answer, and I can't answer it for them. But you're absolutely right that that you can see how different boards or different board members might interpret that differently, and and why it is so important for a board to grapple with that. Correct. And I believe that as we look at it, there's the infamous slippery slope, right? So I say this without attempting to show my politics here, but it's just so interesting that the mission is general enough. The strategies can be different, and a person can contribute to the museum just because they totally dig dinosaurs. But at the end of the day, that board has to be in lockstep about what choice they make here and why, they've, why they make it. And they've got to be, be able to explain that why in a way that's publicly understandable, not some kind of an inside baseball answer. It does strike me that, that that's the heart of the question here, is that the board really has to sit down and come to some conclusion about whether the scientific evidence supporting climate change is somehow core to the mission of the museum. Mm -hmm. That's right. Absolutely. And this notion of controversy, by the way, I would argue, having served on a board, it's really hard to get boards to sit and have tough conversations and reach some kind of very clear conclusion. And it's really hard under fire. And as I think about it, I think that boards really have to figure out how to grapple with issues like this before they become a media storm and have protesters out the outside the museum and internal staff raising a ruckus because under fire, people don't make great decisions. It's one of the reasons that I do crisis management work, helping organizations deal with reputational kinds of issues. It actually bothers me that organizations don't have built-in crisis management plans. I mean, come on, every organization knows what the potential gremlins are, every single one of them. What are the, think of it this way, what are the headlines you absolutely could not bear to see on the front page of the New York Times or the Washington Post? I see these things, I think to myself, were they, I can't, I can't imagine they were unprepared. But I think the notion of making decisions like this is hard, but making them when they've got crisis management right in the face, it's much more of a difficult task. Yeah, and I would just add that that public debate on a whole host of issues, um, climate change certainly being one of them, is so polarized um, and publicized in a way that makes it virtually impossible for an organization to somehow contain or, or, or manage public disagreement. So boards are really wise to consider that when they're making decisions, that you know, really nothing that a board does can completely inoculate its organization from public criticism or the reputational risk associated with it. And organizations need to accept the fact that their stakeholders, whether that's donors, employees, the press, or others who care about the work of the organization, are going to feel empowered to ask questions or take them to task for decisions that, that they consider to be suspect. Um, and, you know, going back to that concept of the 60 minutes test, I think that's why it's so powerful because, you know, it's not just a hypothetical exercise. It's really that practice of asking, are we comfortable with what we're doing? Have we weighed the impact of this decision on the stakeholders and the communities that we care about most? 
Are we comfortable defending this decision uh, that we're making? And are we willing to take the heat for it? If or, you know, I think in some contexts, it's when somebody publicly disagrees with us. Um, You know, and if the board passes this test, it's not just the 60 minute test. It's not just a validation of the decision. It really is preparation for any pushback that it might get from the public. You know, so call that the precursor to to crisis communications or call it, you know, simple, um, you know, good good thought through and uh, thinking through what might happen. But it's really important for boards to understand the impact or the potential impact of the decisions that they're making, particularly when, you know, you can anticipate conflict or controversy. It's also true that how you handle this reverberates in so many ways. It says so much about your organization when these situations are handled well, thoughtfully, and communicated clearly. And it also says a lot when you don't. I've done a number of things with boards where they've had to contend with controversial subjects, and I try not to let them out of the room until there are talking points that someone has drafted, everyone has agreed to, and, there's, and it's indicated around the room. Can everyone live with this? Because these are the core messages based on the decision we reached today. Making sure that you're signing off and that everyone is singing off the same song sheet is super important in terms of the credibility and the reputation of your organization. Absolutely. And, you know, whether you're talking about communications or you're just talking about the decision itself, uh, the more that you can really think through things at the board level, uh, in the hypothetical so that you can really have, uh, a policy response instead of a response to an individual situation, um, that's incredibly helpful, uh, to be, so, so being able to go back and say this is how we this is how we thought about this this is the expectation that we've set for ourselves generally and we followed that policy that's incredibly helpful in a tough situation and it's very helpful um, to know that you relied on a, a similar set of, of variables or criteria that you did in another scenario right and if you legitimately look and say i really can't support that then it's a board you should not be on anymore. Absolutely. Yeah, and I know this isn't what we're we're necessarily focused on in terms of communication strategy, but it is really important at the board level that board members understand what their role in crisis communications um, is and is not. Um, because you don't want board members, and I, I'm not speaking about this this situation individually, but you don't want board members in any crisis communication situation, you know, to be communicating on behalf of the organization in a way that they haven't been empowered to do. And we're almost out of time, but in light of this whole conversation, I'm firmly convinced that getting the right people on the board bus in some ways is mission number one, because so much of the high functioning or low functioning of an organization rests with the board. And if all board members really understood that, and I'm so glad you're at the helm of an organization advocating for people to have a better understanding of that, but boy, recruitment becomes job one. Absolutely, and going back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, are you allowed to disagree as an individual board member? Yes, but you're not you're not able to speak out against a decision that was made by the organization and its board. As a board member, you are responsible for supporting that um, publicly. So, you know, making sure that board members understand that role um, and that that obligation, that duty of loyalty to the organization is really important. So in light of the conversation we've had today, 
Let me ask you one last question, which is what kind of advice do you have for governance and nomination committees when it comes to vetting potential trustees in light of this conversation we've had about politics and responsibility? Yeah, that's a good question. And and just to echo what you were just saying, I mean, it's it's all well and good to have, you know, board members that are trained or or really engaged in the work of the organization. But if you simply don't have the right people around the table, there are real limitations in terms of what the of what the board can do. Um, so getting the right people on the bus or on the board, it, it I could not agree more just in terms of how fundamental that is. Um, so to do that, you know, my advice to governance and nominating committees, uh, in addition to all of the things that we've talked about that really, really speak to the role of the governance committee and in kind of managing the board um, itself, uh, it's really important that board recruitment be a thoughtful process, both in terms of the things that are prioritized in terms of the overall recruitment strategy, and as you said, how individual candidates are vetted. So on the strategy side, BoardSource recommends a very very holistic approach to identifying the leadership qualities and needs that the organization has. And I would say both now and into the future, looking out, you know, uh, at that strategic timeline or horizon and saying, what are we going to need in terms of talents and areas of expertise, networks and access in the future? And how do we, how do we hit that up against who we are currently as, as a board? Where are the gaps? And Organizations, by doing that, are are positioning themselves to ensure that in aggregate, the board is bringing the expertise, access, and perspective that the organization needs. And that requires both thoughtfulness in defining those needs as well as discipline in finding candidates that align with those needs. So not just thinking about board recruitment as whoever's willing to serve, we want them. you want to really be thoughtful about who you need. And sometimes that actually means saying no to great candidates that simply aren't um, what the, the organization and the board needs in this particular moment. Um, so building on that, I would say at the individual candidate level, governance committees need to consider the whole candidate when they're vetting potential board members. And what I mean when I say the whole candidate is just as the committee considers all of the positives that a candidate could bring, they should also consider the potential negatives. So if a governance committee, you know, just simply can't wholeheartedly recommend that a board candidate for for election after discussion of them as a whole candidate, that's a reason to reconsider their candidacy. And I would say it may come at a cost in the short term, whether a bruised relationship or a lost donor, but it may also save the organization a much bigger cost in the long term. And, oh, to have more boards vet their candidates carefully. So many boards approach recruitment with a hunger and a desperation. And we all know that it may take you a little longer to find just the right board member who's in love with your organization and brings that diversity of perspective or diversity in the broadest sense of the word. But, boy, oh, boy, it is a lot harder to remove a board member than to find a good one. Right. That's right. Um, And I do hope that what people have taken away from our conversation today is the responsibility that comes with board service. We probably haven't talked enough about the opportunity that board service presents. Maybe we'll be that. That can be the topic of another podcast. But I think what we have talked about 
is that you have to approach board service with such a level of seriousness and that recruitment has to be so intentional. And when you say yes, it means a lot. It's a big job. And you have described it in a way that's been wonderfully sort of holistic. Again, I think a lot of CEOs I talk to say, I just want my board to fundraise and leave me alone. And to every board member out there, I say, please do not listen to that CEO. This is a much bigger job. Just ask the board of trustees at the American Museum of Natural History. And especially in these times, we live in such an oddly polarized world where these kinds of things, I think, are going to become our, becoming our way with a greater degree of frequency, demanding that board members really have these kinds of thoughtful conversations that you've recommended. And I love your 60 Minutes idea. Actually, I, I, I love pretty much everything you've said. So I really wanted to say thank you. I believe this is an important topic and an important time. And I really think that board members, the more board members really understand how important their jobs are, the more they're going to step into leadership. Well, I, I hope you're right. I think you are. That's the work that that we're focused on here at BoardSource every day. Um, but you're right. It's a big job. Uh, it's a big ask, but it's really important. Uh, and I'm so appreciative to the, you know, something like 20 million board members in this country that are, are doing that work each and every day because they believe in the missions of their organizations um, and because they believe it's so important to stand up for them. So... I don't know how our listener, what time it is when our listeners are listening right now, but I'm about to go to dinner and I'm going to raise my glass of wine to those 20 million folks <laughs> and to you too, Anne, for joining me and adding such value to the discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was such fun. It was a real pleasure. I'm so glad you could join us today. So just a couple of quick words in closing. As you know, I have a number of different resources I make available to folks. First of all, you should go to BoardSource, to the BoardSource website. BoardSource, in general, is the go-to website, the big go-to organization. And you should absolutely go and take a look at the enormous number of resources that are available there. So if you are a board member, you can both understand and appreciate what board service is about. You can always grab a quick blog post from me at joangarrywith2rs.com. I send out something almost every week. We've got this podcast now, which has almost 50 different topics, so you could head on to iTunes, scan the topics, and see if you see something that is a need for your organization right at this time. And then there is the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, our online membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits for whom consulting and coaching fees just may be cost prohibitive. Registration for that will open again pretty soon. So if you'd like to learn more about that, head on over to www.nonprofitleadershiplab.com. You can learn more and also join the waitlist so that when we do open registration, you'll get some information and perhaps you'll join our club over there as well. In the meantime, thank you so much for everything you do and we'll see you next time. Take care. Nonprofits are messy is a service of Joan Gary Consulting. Widely known as the Nonprofit Dear Abby, Joan's leadership blog reaches over 40,000 unique visitors monthly from over 150 countries. Subscribe at www.joangary.com. <laughs>